Welcome to Chapel at Southeastern. My name is Griffin Gulledge. I'm Director of Marketing and Communications here at Southeastern Seminary. Today we have a special chapel for you with Dr. Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Seminary. Dr. Aiken's gonna be taking your questions about Southeastern, about the Southern Baptist Convention, or if you have any questions about scripture in general, feel free to submit all of those questions on the form below on this website where we're streaming this chapel service. If you see a question pop up in the feed that you'd like to have answered, hit the like button next to that question and it'll get moved up in the queue. We're excited to have you with us today for this special Q&A. Let's get started. Well, for many years, you have sat down with our students at chapels and done Q&As on a variety of topics. And today, uh, in the pre-COVID world, we had planned to do one about the Southern Baptist Convention. Of course, the SBC won't be meeting this year, but the work and the mission of the SBC and of our entities and of our churches continues. So we wanted to give our students still an opportunity to ask those questions, give our broader SBC community an opportunity to ask those questions. So why don't we start with the biggest question about the SBC, the one that I think is at the forefront of everyone's mind. Uh, if you've been engaged in SBC life for a long time, you've heard it said that the SBC only exists two days out of the year. But this year, it doesn't exist at all. For the first time since the 1940s, we aren't going to be meeting because of the threat of coronavirus. I want to ask you, is that the right decision? Should we have canceled the annual meeting? Well, I think the answer is absolutely we made the right decision. Uh, and we're simply following in the footsteps of uh, all sorts of entities across America uh, and around the world. I think it was the right decision because right now the focus needs to be on our local churches, on helping our people that are suffering enormously right now, mm. uh, physically, uh, economically. <clears throat> and so the work of the Southern Baptist Convention is set up in such a way, uh, Griffin, that it can keep on going. Mm. Of course, it keeps on going primarily through 45,000 local churches. There is really the center of Baptist work and Baptist life, but your entities are set up in such a way that they can continue to function even without us having an annual meeting. I'll give one example. Uh, Southeastern uh, will continue to uh, offer classes uh, now through an online delivery system. Uh, we would have lost three trustees this year because they would have naturally rotated off but there's provision in our uh, bylaws and constitution that is allowing them to serve an additional year mm -hmm. until the uh, committee on nominations appointed by President J.D. Greer are able to again meet and bring their report at the convention in June uh, 2021. And so we're able to just move right along smoothly uh, without any interruption whatsoever. And the same is true for all of our agencies and entities. So it was the right decision. Uh, it was a tough decision, but I have no doubt that Southern Baptists applaud what we've done there. And uh, we'll make uh, 2021 mm. uh, in Nashville, I believe, uh, all the more special. Mm -hmm. Well, on that same topic, there's a lot of talk out there about how this is going to affect the cooperative program. Of course, the cooperative program is the mechanism that funds all of our SBC entities, funds all of the Southern Baptist seminaries, including ours, funds the North American Mission Board, the International Mission Board, the ERLC. Um, we've heard for a few years that the CP was maybe declining a bit when you consider total receipts, but what are we supposed to expect now? And, and, and in addition to that, how would you encourage churches 
and pastors as they're making hard decisions ahead to continue giving to the CP? Well, the good news is our giving was up this year uh, mm. and uh, until what has occurred uh, recently mm. with uh, COVID-19. Uh, uh, here's where we are. Um, churches have to take care of what's going on there first and foremost, and all of your agencies and entities recognize that. Uh, at the same time, we know that this is an unprecedented time. We've never walked down this road before. And so it's giving our churches new opportunities actually to educate their people about giving and about how to give. And for example, I know there's been a great growth and in interest in uh, online giving. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll be honest, at one time, I was not a big fan of that because I see giving as a part of worship that I always enjoyed doing when my local church would gather. But I'll be honest, I'm grateful now that that is in place uh, at my local <coughs> church and many others so that the giving just keeps on going for those that have not been tremendously uh, affected by uh, the coronavirus. Now, again, we have a lot of people that are out of work right now. Yes. And so all of the agencies uh, and entities are anticipating a downturn in the cooperative program. How much? We don't know. Uh, I've heard estimates anywhere from 10% uh, to 30%. Mm. And uh, here at Southeastern, uh, we're taking steps to um, adjust for that. Mm. Uh, by God's good grace, we are in a good, healthy position right now. But even there, we have frozen spending, we have frozen hiring, right. uh, and we're making preparation for both a um, slight discomfort and a worst case scenario. Mm. But what I again know is Southern Baptists are an amazing and resilient people. That's right. And in times like this, they always step up to the plate. And I'm hearing wonderful stories across the Southern Baptist Convention of giving not going down, but actually going up as people realize this is a time uh, to be sacrificial uh, and to make sure the work of the Lord continues both locally uh, nationally and internationally. And so it's going to be a tough time, but at the same time, we know that God is sufficient and he'll meet our needs uh, for his glory. Absolutely. Well, continuing on that theme of the coronavirus, there has been some strong language used by some governmental leaders, most notably um, Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York City, about potentially not just asking churches not to meet, but actually uh, shutting down or permanently closing churches, which of course is very troubling to all Southern Baptists and everyone who believes in religious liberty, how do you recommend that Southern Baptist churches balance love for their neighbor and taking wise precautions with setting precedents that could ultimately compromise what we believe about religious liberty? Well, let me say first of all that uh, that was a very irresponsible statement uh, on his part. Uh, and if the government were to ever move to shut down uh, churches in our nation, I think that you would see a massive pushback, and rightly so. Uh, that would be a huge overstep of the government. Furthermore, we do balance from the Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 13, where we're told to be in obedience to the governing authorities that God has sovereignly uh, and providentially put over us. Uh, at the same time, we're also taught from Scripture, if I have to obey God or government, then government loses. Mm. Uh, and it loses like every single time. Right. And so for anyone to push in that direction, I think is both wrong-headed, uh, I think it is dangerous. Having said that, 
I think what has taken place for the most part from our government has been responsible so that they have asked uh, churches to voluntarily not meet at this time because of the danger of the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, I regret that, but I think it is the wise, uh, the right, and it is the loving thing to do at this particular time. Now, what I've seen, Griffin, is that it has birthed a whole new creative way of the body of Christ being the body of Christ. Anywhere from online services, which I know some people find problematic, uh, it's certainly not to be normative. Right. This is not a normal time. This yeah, is an exceptional time. Uh, you have folks meeting in parking <clears throat> lots. Uh, you have very small churches meeting and scattering their people across their auditorium. And so we are finding ways to continue to minister to one another, care for one another, sit under the instruction of God's infallible and inerrant word. Right. And so I look forward to when we return to normalcy and uh, we're gathering like we always have on the Lord's day to worship as his family and as his body. But uh, we want to honor the, the government, mm. but we ultimately honor, worship, and serve a king that supersedes whatever government would ever tell us to do, and especially if what they are asking us to do is in violation of Scripture. That's right. That's right. Jesus is Lord. Caesar Absolutely. Is not. Well, let me ask you one of the questions that's come in from our viewers here. And again, I want to invite you to ask questions at sabbathstudy.eu slash chapel. If you uh, have one, we, we would love to hear it. Um, but one of the top questions that's come in is, uh, Dr. Aiken, what does your daily devotional time look like? Well, for me, uh, I get up in the morning and uh, fix a giant glass of iced tea and get me two Diet Cokes. I call that the breakfast of champions. And then I make my way to my study where I basically do three things. Uh, number one, I pull out a Baptist hymnal. I love the old hymns of the faith, mm -hmm. especially those that are rich in theology and speak of the person and work of Christ. I, I just do. So I will take a hymn a day, and I'm in the privacy, thankfully, of my study, and I sing. Uh, and I sing that hymn uh, to the Lord. Then I take God's Word, and I read a passage of Scripture. Uh, I often am working through a particular book right now. Uh, I'm spending a lot of time in the Psalms, so I will read one, two, three Psalms. Then I always go to uh, my computer, and I pull up uh, the Joshua Project so that I read about and then pray for the unreached people group of that particular day. So that allows me to worship the Lord through singing, mm -hmm. which I think is uh, vital to our the health of our soul. Right. Uh, I read God's Word and meditate upon it, and then I pray for the nations, particularly and specifically through the mechanism of what the Joshua Project allows. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I begin uh, each of my mornings most of the time. Now, again, uh, I've moved past the stage of being a, a, a rigid legalist. So if for some reason I don't get to do that particular pattern that day, uh, I don't heap a ton of guilt on myself, right. just right. recognizing something came up that pushed that to the side. But most each day, that is how I will approach the Lord in the morning. Mm. Well, that's great to know. Um, well, I want to return to the SBC really okay. quickly. This has obviously been a, a very eventful year in the SBC. If you thought, you know, 2018 was eventful, 2019, 2020 has, has, has far surpassed it already. And in the midst of many other pressing conversations, one that still stands out is that we are in the midst of a major constitutional amendment process to protect the sexually abused among us 
and to actually refuse fellowship to churches who harbor abusers. So where do we go from here with the convention being canceled? And then as a, as a follow-up to that, what is Southeastern doing to address sexual abuse in our education of future pastors? Well, last year when the convention met, uh, we actually moved to adjust our bylaws and constitution in two areas, the area of sexual abuse and the area of racism. Mm. And I was 150% behind and supportive of both mm. of those. And I rejoice in the fact that both of those were passed <coughs> overwhelmingly because they are changes to our bylaws and constitution that have to be voted on a second time. And mm. so it will not happen this year, but I have every reason to believe it will happen in 2021. Mm. And again, I expect overwhelming support for both of those uh, changes to our bylaws and constitution. Concerning uh, sexual abuse, there's no question that the last several years have been very uh, tumultuous for Southern Baptists, but in a good way, I think, because it has raised uh, the uh, importance and put on the radar screen in a new way the crisis and the severity mm. of sexual abuse, right. not just in the culture, but tragically, even within the church. And uh, things that at one time, let me just very quickly, anecdotally, when I was younger in ministry, when something like this happened, almost always the response was, uh, keep it quiet and deal with it behind the scenes. Now, I don't think they were trying to cover it up. Uh, I hope in most cases they weren't. Sometimes they were. But the issue was kind of this mindset, what happens in the church stays in the church. Mm. So let's deal with it behind the scenes. Let the church take care of it. But as a result of that, many times things got swept under the rug. And abusers uh, who have uh, honed the art uh, of abuse uh, were too often allowed to resign rather than be fired. Right. And then they simply quietly moved on to another place where their predatory activity took place and commenced again. Thankfully, now we realize that was, though maybe well-intended, mm. wrong-headed, completely right. wrong-headed. Furthermore, the government actually helped us here because we now know that if we were made aware of even an accusation of sexual abuse of a minor, uh, at least in North Carolina, we are required by law uh, to report that. Right. So all of that to say this, Southeastern Seminary, uh, beginning a number of years ago, began <clears throat> an educational process for our staff, our faculty, and all of our students. And we've taken very seriously the recommendations that come from that have come from the task force that was appointed by J.D. Greer, the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, so that our people know, one, uh, how to recognize uh, sexual abuse when it right. occurs, and then secondly, what are the responsibilities, both governmentally and ecclesiastically, what is our responsibility to the government and to the church in handling these things in a God-honoring and appropriate way? Mm -hmm. And again, I certainly always believe that there should be um, uh, grace uh, extended in all these situations, but there should also be truth. Absolutely. Uh, there should be uh, justice mm -hmm. uh, as well as compassion. And so what we want to do is make sure that we first and foremost deal in a redemptive, loving, compassionate way to the victims. We Absolutely. then deal with the abusers uh, in a just way 
but also a loving way, recognizing though there may be repercussions from their activity that will fall into the criminal category. In fact, most right. of the time it does. Right. And they may spend time uh, in jail or in prison. At the same time, we want to love them. We want to the best of our ability, restore them and redeem them uh, to health to the degree that we can. Sure. Uh, I certainly believe, this is my own conviction, uh, Griffin, that when it comes to those in the ministry, such activity disqualifies them permanently mm. from ever being in a leadership position again uh, in a church. Does it mean that they cannot be restored to the fellowship of the church? But even there, if we're gonna love them well, we're gonna put in place protective Absolutely. barriers that will greatly uh, ensure that such activity and behavior doesn't happen again. So I'm grateful that J.D. Greer stepped up, appointed this task force along with Russ Moore, really put this on the front burner of Southern Baptist, uh, uh, our attention. And uh, we still have a long ways to go, but I do believe we have made some great strides and hopefully we'll continue to move in the right direction. Right. And as far as the constitutional amendment goes, we still have to pass it, right? It, it needed we'll two years. We'll have to vote years. on it one more time because anytime you change the bylaws and constitution, it requires two uh, votes uh, of the convention in succession. Now, since we're not meeting this year, I don't think that means the issue dies. It right. simply means that that issue will be pushed to the 2021 convention for its second vote. And I'm, again, quite confident that both the uh, change, the, 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 the bylaw um, uh, on uh, sexual abuse, as well as the one on racism will pass overwhelmingly because one, it's biblical, and secondly, I think it is where Southern Baptists are today, and we want to make sure with crystal clear clarity, this is where we stand, and this right. is what we believe about both of these issues. Absolutely. Well, thank you for answering that, because I know with so many things going on in the SBC, this could be a time that abuse victims might feel like their their issue, their advocacy is being you know put to the side. But I, I think it's important no. for them to hear you, know, you are a priority we will do everything that we can to protect you and to protect our children, protect women and men who've been abused in our churches from abusers and apply the gospel to and these And let situations. me add this. I think all six seminaries see this now as a responsibility. So mm -hmm. I'm excited and confident that at all six of our seminaries, our students are being taught and instructed well mm -hmm. about both how to identify sexual abuse and then secondly, how to appropriately respond to it. Well, praise God for that. Now, it's not just been an eventful year in the SBC. Like you said, it's also been a tumultuous year. Going into the 2019 SBC, sexual abuse was by far the, the most talked about topic. Leaving last year's convention, a number of people were unhappy with Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality, which the SBC messengers adopted pretty overwhelmingly on that topic. Uh, some of those have voiced those concerns. They've voiced them... Um, consistently. They voice those concerns passionately. They voice them in, in public and in private. How do you respond to those who, who are frustrated or upset by Resolution 9 or, or see this as a, a sign of bad things to come? Okay. Well, that's a question that we could spend the rest of our time talking sure. about and beyond. So let me try to get a hold of it uh, in a concise way. Uh, first of all, it's unfortunate the way that things ended with the convention in Birmingham. It's unfortunate <coughs> that the resolutions got put to the end of the last day, that we ran out of time, uh, that a lot of the messengers had already left, and there wasn't sufficient time to debate 
uh, and discuss this particular uh, resolution. Uh, secondly, and, and Griffin, I try to follow it to the best of my ability. I don't always do it uh, uh, well, but to the best of my ability, First uh, Corinthians chapter 13. And so I do believe that love uh, bears all things, believes all things, mm -hmm. hopes all things, and endures all things. And so I do believe that love, especially for my brothers and sisters in Christ, gives the benefit of the doubt. Right. So I want to give the benefit of the doubt to everybody in this conversation because I do think most people are well-intended. They, they, they want right. to do the right thing and they want to deal with what they see as a problem or an issue. Right. Now, when it comes to the resolution itself, first of all, I know closely and intimately uh, many of the persons on the resolution committee. Two of the uh, members of the resolution committee uh, are members of this faculty, uh, Walter Strickland and, and Keith Whitfield. I know these men very well. They're dear brothers, dear friends. They are rock solid Absolutely. theologically. Uh, I am thrilled that both of them are here, but I know many of the others uh, on the committee as well. And there's not a single person on that resolutions committee that I don't trust and that I don't believe has the best interest of the Southern Baptist Convention at heart. So when they brought forward the resolution, I think uh, it's a good resolution overall. Mm. Uh, are there areas where I would have written things differently? Well, of course. Uh, are there some things that uh, in light now of a follow-up conversation could have been said differently and brought uh, greater clarity and also shown, and this is my own thinking here, where we're actually closer together than we are far apart? Yes, I think that is uh, the case. You know, hindsight's always perfect. And so I wouldn't deny that at all. Uh, I do think some of the reaction to it in terms of rhetoric has not been as helpful as it should have been. I, I'm, right. I'm sometimes amazed and even disappointed at how we'll talk about one another uh, in the social media world when we would never talk to one another like that uh, face to face. And so I, I grieve over that. Having said that, here's how I'm approaching it. Number one, I think I can say with absolute confidence to Southern Baptists, uh, cultural Marxism, critical race theory, uh, critical theory, intersectionality are not being advocated at any of our seminaries. I Absolutely. don't know a critical race theorist uh, or a cultural Marxist in any of our uh, entities or institutions, right. not a one. Right. I don't know one. And you say, well, you're just ignorant. Well, that's possible. But the other thing is I know all of these persons uh, better than those that are attacking them because I live with them day in and day out. And I engage them in conversation about these issues mm. on a regular basis. So that'd be the first thing that I would, would want to say. But I want to say thank you to those that have been critical and have expressed their concerns right. because false teaching almost always slips in and sneaks in unawares. And so have they raised our awareness uh, and uh, the antenna, if you like, of us being careful, uh, watching critically right. uh, what's being taught, uh, what's being said, uh, yes, absolutely. But I do think there's a misunderstanding, and, and I'll, I'll close this part with this, and if you have a follow-up question, sure. I'll be glad to engage it. 
Uh, I operate out of a epistemology or a way of coming to truth uh, that I was taught by Russ Bush, my former colleague and philosophy professor at Southwestern Seminary, uh, when he made us read a book by a philosopher at Wheaton <coughs> College named Arthur Holmes. Uh, the title of the book was uh, All Truth is God's Truth. And I believe that because God is the ultimate author of truth. So all truth, wherever we find it, whether it's in history or philosophy or ethics or science or just going down the road, all truth is God's truth wherever we find it, all right? So even if we find truth in a faulty system, and again, the resolution was very clear. It recognizes that critical theory, critical race theory, intersectionality, emerge out of a cultural Marxist worldview, which is an atheistic and therefore a wrong-headed, faulty, and dangerous worldview way of thinking. It acknowledges that, and I think we all need to recognize that very clearly. Right. But let me use an analogy. Right now, the world's attention is focused on the coronavirus. Would it be wise for us just to ignore the coronavirus and just hope that it kind of magically goes away. Of course not. No, that would be very foolish and would be very irresponsible. Now, do we need to investigate the coronavirus? Absolutely. Do we need to study it in minute, minute, minute detail? Some of us do, certainly our scientists do. Now, when they do study it, because it is something that is dangerous, because it is something that is life-threatening, they need to make sure they've got on every protective gear that is possibly available as they look into the and investigate and try to understand, one, how does this thing work? Uh, secondly, what makes it successful? Right. Three, how do we kill it? Right. All right. Well, I see cultural Marxism and other uh, atheistic ideologies, right. uh, critical theory, uh, intersectionality in a similar kind of a way. I want to investigate them. I want to make sure I understand them well. I want to understand what makes them even attractive uh, to certain segments of our culture and our society. Then I want to be able to critique it and right. show why though there may be every now and then a glimmer of right. something that smacks of truth, ultimately this system is dangerous this system is flawed, and we need to be very wary of it, just like we need to be wary of the coronavirus. So I am grateful that I have colleagues at this school and other schools that do examine it, that do study it, but in no, without exception, uh, Griffin, all of them I know reject it mm. uh, or reject these various approaches as flawed and faulty ideologies and worldviews. Right. Well, certain you know, certain phrases have been emphasized in this conversation, but some of the ones that haven't been emphasized from the resolution is Christian Christian citizenships, not based on our differences. We affirm Scripture as the first, last, and sufficient authority. It should be um, repudiated. We should repudiate the misuse of insights gained from critical race theory, intersectionality, and unbiblical ideologies. We denounce the misuse of critical race theory and intersectionality. So. Like you said, I mean, maybe maybe there are things we might change, but it does seem like pretty clearly that this resolution is a denunciation of the ways that those yes. things subvert the gospel. Let me give you an example again that I think shows how people can misunderstand what's going on here. I've been teaching uh, in either a Bible college or seminary now for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. I've taught theology, 
I've taught preaching, I've taught hermeneutics. When I teach hermeneutics in particular, one of the things I will point out is that none of us uh, is a blank slate when it comes to interpreting the Bible. We all come to the Bible with a particular perspective, uh, presuppositions, a particular worldview. Right. And I will say something like this, Danny Aiken cannot help the fact that he comes to the Bible as a white male married who comes from the deep south who has rock solid convictions and commitments about the supernatural worldview, about the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, mm -hmm. and who is committed to Orthodox Christianity and uh, finds his own uh, worldview in terms of theology well reflected in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the Abstractive Principles, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, yes. and the Nashville Statement on Gender uh, and Gender Identity. And so I said, I acknowledge that that's who I am. I suspect that I read the Bible differently than say a uh, lesbian woman um, of a different ethnicity who lives up in the Northwest and is committed to a pantheistic worldview way of thinking. I of think we probably read the Bible differently. Now, having said that, does that mean that we cannot communicate across our differences? No, it does not. Does it mean that I cannot share with her the gospel and the Holy Spirit take that gospel message and convert her so that her worldview is turned upside down on its head, acknowledging that I could never change her mind or mm -hmm. her way of thinking, but the Holy Spirit certainly can. Right. Now, I've been teaching that for over 30 years. We weren't talking about critical race theory or intersectionality 30 years ago. What I was trying to help my students understand is even though I come to the Bible with all of those presuppositions, because I am aware of them, mm. I can be more self-critical. And I can ask questions about, is my bias right. causing me to read the Bible in a way that is not actually true to the divinely, authorally intended meaning that is deposited there by the Holy Spirit. Now, none of that has anything to do with critical theory or intersectionality sure. or cultural Marxism. It simply has to do with a recognition that when it comes to the interpretive process, yes, there's an author, yes, there's a text, and there's also a reader, and readers do come to the text with certain ways of already thinking that hopefully they can be self-critical. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, Griffin, uh, the Bible, it, though I do believe strongly in the doctrine of the priest of the believer, God did not intend for the Bible to be read in isolation. God intended for the Bible to be read within a believing community right. that can function as a check and balance among the community of faith so that we do together read the Bible more rightly and more correctly, which is why, again, I think we do better when we sit down to read the Bible and we have brothers and sisters coming from all different ethnicities, all different socioeconomic standings, because they're going to have insights into this infallible, inerrant text mm -hmm. that I, for example, will miss simply because of who I am, where I've lived, right. where I was born, what I've studied, and who I'm influenced by. Right, right. And those those same biases when we come to a text can come to how people who are very close together generally read a resolution. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah, I think in a sense, you know, if I could 
put it in two dichotomies, and I know there's always a danger in that. Some have come to the resolution with a hermeneutic of sympathy, mm-hmm. giving it kind of the benefit of the doubt. Right, right. Others have come more with a hermeneutic of suspicion, and therefore they see things and spot things that those who come with a hermeneutic of, of sympathy don't necessarily see. Now, what I would say is put two of <coughs> put both sides together, and I think we can together read the resolution more clearly, uh, more fairly, and more right. honestly. Right. Well, I want to move on to a little lighter question. Okay. I want to ask you the top question here in our Slido. I think it's a great one. Um, it says, uh, is UGA, the Buffalo Bills of the SEC, always the bridesmaid but never the bride? Uh, I'm sure that that question came from somebody <laughs> who is in the flesh and, and not walking with the Lord as they ought because they would know how hurtful and painful that question would be to this particular brother in Christ who is an over-the-top uh, UGA fan. Uh, I would say this to this point in time uh, in my life, uh, there is a close analogy, <laughs> although the year that my twin boys were born, that is the year that Herschel Walker mm. was a freshman, and it was the year that Georgia won their last national championship. Unfortunately, uh, the Buffalo Bills went to the Super Bowl four times, I believe, mm. never won it. So at least Georgia has won. Uh, I just keep asking the Lord, uh, might it be that you could graciously bestow upon the dogs one more national championship <laughs> in my lifetime? That's all I'm asking. Not asking for <laughs> a multiplicity, just one. And I will leave it at that. Well, as an Auburn fan, I'm not sure I can go there with you. But, uh, you know, Hebrews does say that Jesus was made perfect by what he he suffered, and so maybe God's just doing a great sanctifying work in the Bulldogs fan base. Uh, he know. certainly has been doing a significant <laughs> work for a long time in that regard. All right. Well, let's move on to a, another question. Maybe something a little more serious here from our from our audience. Um, somebody asked, "How can we be praying for you and your family?" This comes from Andrew Kissler. Well, that's very kind of Andrew. First of all, God is being very kind to us so that through this particular uh, season with the coronavirus, uh, I'm in good health, Charlotte's in good health uh, overall, and we're being wise to uh, keep distance and do all the things that we've been told to do. Graciously, God has also been kind to bless my four sons, uh, their four wives, uh, our 13 grandchildren. As of right now, they're all in health and doing well. Uh, particularly, we have a, another addition coming mm-hmm. to our family in May. Uh, my oldest son, Nathan, and his wife, Kelsey, will be having a little girl in just a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And so just praying that in this time uh, that she would have a safe uh, and healthy delivery and that the same prayer I pray for all of my grandchildren that they each one would grow up to uh, love and be converted uh, by the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they would give their lifetimes loving him and serving him. Uh, Mm. I can't think of a better prayer that I could ask for anyone to pray for me Mm. uh, and my family. Well, we will. We hope those of you watching at home will pray for Dr. Aiken as well. This is a great time to pray for all of our leaders, for our seminary presidents, but also for our pastors. Please pray for your pastors for our denominational leaders at large, and of course, for our governmental leaders. Um, Here's another question from uh, Preston. Dr. Aiken, what cultural battles do you think this rising generation of pastors will have to face? 
Well, I think this generation will uh, fight uh, more than any other generation the gender issue. Mm. Um, this generation is going to grow up in a world where, at least in our country, uh, same-sex marriage has always been. Mm. It's always been. Right. Uh, so my grandchildren in particular are going to grow up in a country where they've never known a time when same-sex marriage was not the law of the land. Mm -hmm. They've never known a time where issues related to the LGBTQ community were not front and center in terms of social uh, and public conversation. And I think we're gonna have to teach them to navigate again how to walk with truth and grace, how to walk clearly on what the Bible says about gender and that there are two genders, male and female, mm. and that marriage as God intended it can only be between a man and a woman joined together in a covenantal relationship. And therefore we uh, do not back up from that. We don't compromise that. Uh, no matter who's involved in such a lifestyle at the same time. We want to recognize and never lose sight of the fact that uh, the gospel can transform any life and that the gospel is their hope. And therefore, we want to be known as a people that stand for truth, but also a people that extend grace Absolutely. and love and kindness. And mm -hmm. so our churches, uh, we need to be crystal clear. If yes. you are in a... Uh, lifestyle that falls under one of those uh, alphabet letters I gave a moment ago, mm. you are welcome to come and worship with us. We want you to come. We will love you. We will care for you. But you can't join the church. Right. Because if you call good what God calls evil, That's right. then I don't care what the issue is, I think that disqualifies you for membership within the body of Christ. In other words, we have to agree with God about what is right, and we have to agree with God about what is wrong. We have to agree with God what marks righteousness, and we have to agree with God with what marks evil and wickedness. And therefore, we will love them and minister them and care for them. You may have seen the recent uh, issue raised with Samaritan Purse mm -hmm. going to New York uh, and how the um, gay, lesbian, transgender community right. rose Deeply up Deeply concerned. And they're as if, well, to they're going to somehow be bigoted and biased in the people right. that they care for. Well, that's never been true of Samaritan Purse. Right. And that's never true of the authentic body of Christ. Uh, we don't check your, um, your sinner's card uh, at the door right. uh, in terms of loving you and caring for you and ministering to you. We're going to minister to you no matter who you are. We're going to love you no matter who you are. We're going to care for you no matter who you are because that's what our Father has called us to do. But having said that, we also recognize that the body of Christ is a redeemed community that lives under the absolute and total authority mm. of the Word of God. And therefore, it's going to be a tough issue to navigate. I would also say this. It comes around again and again and again, and that is the exclusivity of the gospel. Yeah. Right now, it's just kind of lurking underneath. But when you engage someone that is lost and you tell them, I actually believe that anyone who reaches an age of moral, discern uh, moral discernment who does not receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior tragically will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell, they just go apoplectic. You're telling me right. that if I don't say and believe that Jesus 
is the Lord and Savior of all people, and He is my personal Lord and Savior. I'm going to hell. Uh, yes, that is what we believe. Right. They just find that incomprehensible. They can't right. believe that theological Neanderthals like that are still walking the earth, and yet again, uh, we didn't make this up. This is what you find on in the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the words of Peter, and therefore the exclusivity of the gospel, I think, is going to continue to be a stumbling block uh, to the culture. I think thirdly, and it again tends to come around cyclically, two things, the authority of the Bible and also creation evolution. Mm. And again, I tragically see even among so-called evangelicals, People giving ground in both the creation evolution debate, surrendering territory that I don't believe you can do and still be faithful to Scripture. And then when it comes to the Bible, you know, um, I, I will have people that will say to me, you know, uh, Griffin, I believe in the authority of the Bible. The Bible is my authority. When they say that, a red light always appears in my mind and warning signs begin to go off because anytime I talk to someone that hedges on saying, no, what I actually believe is the Bible to be right. infallible and inerrant, verbally and plenary inspired, then I know that somewhere lurking is an openness to error and mistakes in the Bible. Right. And so sometimes people say Southern Baptist won the war over the Bible, that is incorrect. We did win the battle for the Bible in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Right. But the battle for the Bible will be fought again and again and again right. until the Lord Jesus comes again. And so this generation, I believe, again, will have to fight the battle over both mm. the authority of the Bible and the sufficiency of the Bible. Right. Right. We've just had another question come in that actually is a follow-up on your comments on hermeneutics. Okay. And they asked, yes, everyone um, everyone brings their own insights into the Scripture, but shouldn't it be interpreted objectively? Isn't, it, isn't there just a conclusion that everybody should come to the same objective conclusions about every text? Is that not the case? Well, first of all, I do believe there is one authorally intended meaning in the text mm. that was deposited in a divine human, uh, if you like, dance of the divine author and the human author. That's why when I teach theology, uh, and the, the orthodox view has always been, the Bible is a fully divine book and it is a fully human book. Mm. It is the Word of God written in the words of men. But of course, ultimately, the deposited meaning was superintended by the divine author. So I do believe in an authorly intended meaning. The meaning is one, though the applications are many, all right? But the problem is there's no such thing as a purely objective interpreter. Right. Uh, that animal does not exist. We all have biases. We all have subjectivity. We all have presuppositions. Furthermore, we're all flawed and fallen. That's why good, godly interpreters of the Bible committed to both the inerrancy of the Bible and the sufficiency of the Bible can draw different conclusions about the meaning of the Bible. That's why today you've got people that fall into those categories that differ on matters of eschatology. Mm. You've got persons that differ on details and specifics 
of the doctrine of salvation. That's why here at Southeastern and at all of our seminaries, right. uh, you've got five-point Calvinist, you've got four-point Calvinist, you've got three-point Calvinist, you've got a few two-and-a-half-point Calvinists right. uh, who all believe in the inerrancy and sufficiency and authority of the Bible, but they do draw different conclusions. We've got premillennialist, postmillennialist, not many, I haven't um, met any of those. <laughs> there's just a few lurking around. Amillennialist, right. you've got those that are pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, partial rapture, pre-wrath rapture. Uh, when I was at Southern Seminary for eight years, one of my dearest friends in all the world still is, is Al Moeller. Uh, he's a classic five-point Calvinist. I'm a modified four-point Calvinist. Mm. Uh, he is post-trib, pre-mill. I'm pre-trib, uh, pre-mill. Now, did we have conversations about this? Yes. Did we try to persuade one another? Yes. Did he change his view? No. Did I change my view? No. And so we do need to recognize that this that it's a myth hmm. of pure objectivity. Right. But having said that, I absolutely believe in a fixed meaning in the text. The problem is not with the text. Right. The problem is with sinful interpreters, even though we are redeemed and right. regenerate, and we have the aid of the Holy Spirit, still our sinfulness gets in the way so that we'll still be working, hopefully, toward the right meaning of the text. And, and, and again, when it comes to the big things, uh, Griffin, those who believe the Bible to be inerrant and infallible and the sole authority mm. uh, for faith and practice, we agree on a whole lot more right. than we disagree on. And we certainly agree on the big issues related to the doctrine of God, right. the doctrine of man, the doctrine of salvation, and so on. And so we actually do believe a whole lot more together uh, than we differ on. Right. Uh, the difference is, again, rather than promoting animosity and uh, even suspicion, I would argue ought to promote uh, humility. Right. And a humble interpreter, I think, will always be a more God-glorifying mm. interpreter. That's good. That's good. Well, let me ask you another question here about Southeastern Seminary that's come in from one of our uh, our listeners here. Jerry has asked, uh, he says, I've read things online about Karen Swallow Pryor affirming homosexuality, but I'm not so sure about the website I read it on. Is that true? And if so, why was she hired? And if I could just add... Um, first, if you could address Dr. Pryor, why she was hired here, what she believes about homosexuality, but also if you could just talk about these kinds of websites where these things are, are written, I think sure. that would be really helpful for everyone watching at home. Well, first of all, uh, Karen Swallow Pryor was one of the original signatories of the Nashville Statement, which is a thoroughly orthodox evangelical statement signed by thousands of uh, evangelical Bible-believing believers. She also has affirmed without mental reservation or hesitation our four confessions of faith, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, as well as the Abstract of Principles and the Baptist Faith and Message. So she holds to the Bible's clear teaching concerning the sinfulness of homosexuality, mm. transgenderism, and, and so on. Uh, she is a wonderful, gifted uh, English professor who has been one of the most popular teachers at Liberty University now going almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so we felt blessed that uh, the Lord opened the door for her to come and join this faculty. And if she did not believe like this faculty believes, all of those confessions, one, 
uh, we wouldn't have hired her. And two, I know her to be a woman of integrity. She wouldn't have come, and she would not have even been willing to enter into a conversation. Unfortunately, uh, there are blogs out there, and there are avenues of social media, some very good, that are very helpful and uh, teach and promote truth, some that are not as helpful, that tend to be more sensationalist, and just be honest with you, uh, sometimes just dishonest. Uh, It's unfortunate that uh, we don't always have the ability to discern one from the other. And so what I always say to people is, when you hear somebody say something about anyone on a blog, uh, go back to the primary sources. Go back and listen specifically and completely about what the person actually said and also what the person actually wrote. And so when it comes to Karen or anyone else, go and read what they've actually written. Go and read what they've actually said. I tell you what, why don't you contact them directly? I know Karen well enough that if you contact her directly, uh, she'll not blow you off. Uh, She'll respond. And she is delighted to answer in a straightforward, forthright way what she believes and what she thinks. When we interviewed her about coming here, we asked her a plethora, (coughs) which means a lot of questions. And we were very confident, very satisfied in what she said and very confident that she would fit well into this highly confessional Great Commission Seminary. In fact, she said one of the reasons she wanted to come here was the fact that she wanted to teach uh, men and women in the context of a seminary that places such a high premium on being obedient to the Great Commission. Right. Well, thank you for that. I know we're excited to have Dr. Pryor here. Thrilled. She is one of the foremost English scholars in evangelicalism and our sister in Christ. And I'm delighted that she's coming. Let me ask you our, our top question here. It's anonymous. There's no name attached to it. Um, but they've just asked, what are some of your hobbies? My hobbies uh, are very limited. I'm a very simple person. In fact, when my wife travels with me, she says, I'm one of the most boring individuals in the world. Uh, I like to walk when it's nice weather. I went out and walked yesterday almost three and a half miles. I'll try to go out and walk or bike today. I like to do that, though I don't do it as often as I should. Uh, I love to read. Uh, I actually, uh, Griffin, in fact, kind of goes back to a question earlier. W.A. Crystal years ago said that you should turn your time in the study into a time of worship and devotion. Mm. And so I tried to find that, and the Lord in His grace has allowed me to do so, so that when I am studying and preparing to uh, teach or preach God's Word. Uh, It is not draining. Uh, It is not wearisome or cumbersome. I thrive. I love Mm -hmm. it. I play Christian music in the background. And so I love to read uh, and I love to study, which no one when I was in high school would have ever believed (laughs) that Danny Aiken would be walking down that path. Uh, I love the fall. And I love to watch college and professional football. Mm. Uh, I uh, will spend all day Saturday if I'm at home, as I did with my boys when they were little, watching college football. Mm. And so for me, it's kind of a Sabbath uh, exercise and activity. I still enjoy watching basketball. I enjoy baseball. Uh, It helps I've learned to have a professional team actually in your city. But uh, so I keep up though with the Braves and I keep up with the Rangers and I keep up painfully with the Cowboys and with the Falcons and so on. You've chosen a real group of uh, winners there. Why couldn't I have been a fan (laughs) of New England where you've got the Patriots, 
Nuggets, and you got the Celtics, <laughs> and now in recent years you've got the Sox, and you've got the Bruins. I don't know. I guess, again, as you said earlier, God's trying to teach me through suffering. Hey, first but, round of the playoffs is the best round anyway. It, well, yes. Right. So I love sports, and so I find those to be relaxing hobbies. And then my wife loves movies. Hmm. And so whether it's going to the theater or just sitting at home and watching movies, she loves that. Well, hmm. I love her. And so I just join in with her in that That's regard. Great. And other than that, um, I love going to see my kids and my grandkids. Mm. And those of, that are my now at my age now uh, know that there's nothing better in this world than having grandkids that crawl up in your lap and love on you and hug on you. So those are basically mm. the things that I find uh, relaxing and that are hobbies for Danny Aiken. Mm. Well, we've got a lot of questions here. We've got about four minutes left. Uh, I think I'm only going to be able to ask you one unless we move through it quickly. But um, let me just ask you this. Uh, one of the other big issues that's been uh, talked about lately in the SBC um, is about women in ministry. The extremes on both sides are being rejected. Nobody's saying, you know, women are lesser humans. They shouldn't be in any kind of ministry. Nobody is saying, yes, let's have women pastors in the SBC. You know, those those two extremes are, are out. Um, but... There is a question about how much can women do in ministry in Southern Baptist churches? And it's a very pertinent question because right now Southeastern has more women training than ever before in our history. And we've actually just announced four degree programs. We have mm -hmm. our uh, Master of Arts in Ministry to Women, our Master of Arts in Ministry to Women plus Biblical Counseling. We have a THM in Women's Studies preparing women for PhD programs right. through research. And we actually have a Doctor of Ministry now in ministry to women, as well as some very capable and, and competent women in PhD programs and, and missiology and theology and on our faculty. So what direction do you think the Southern Baptist Convention is headed into uh, with regards to women in ministry and how much are we allowed to disagree? Let me give a quick answer. Sure. Uh, one, uh, women can do a lot. They can do a lot in the body of Christ under the clear teachings and authority of Scripture. Two, what is clearly uh, out of bounds uh, is women serving in the office uh, and doing the work of the elder, uh, the pastor, the overseer, which I do believe are interchangeable mm. uh, terms. So a woman uh, cannot be an elder or a right. pastor. That is out of bounds. And I don't think she should be doing that, which approximates the office of the elder as well. Now. After that, there are going to be differences of opinion. Some people would say that a woman should never speak uh, in the public gathering of the corporate body. Uh, my response would be they certainly should not fulfill the office of the elder. But 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that women did pray and prophesy right. in the gatherings of the early church. So right. women clearly had some speaking role that was deemed acceptable uh, by the Holy Spirit mm. that is taught in the Scriptures. Um, I don't know any women, including some of the high-profile women that have become points of contention, that want to be pastors, right. that want to be every week preachers to a mixed congregation. And I think that would be problematic. Uh, you say, well, what about them coming in uh, exceptionally, uh, occasionally, but not regularly? Um, my own thinking there is I'm not going to have a woman speak on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or whenever that could confuse my people with respect to the office of the elder. Right. I'm not going to do that. But does that rule out ever having a woman 
speak in the corporate gathering. No, it doesn't. Here at Southeastern, uh, I've only had one woman speak in chapel in my uh, 16 years here, mm. uh, but uh, I gave her the whole service. Now you say, uh, who was she? Well, she was Carrie McDonald, a missionary who lost her husband uh, in a mm. brutal shooting that also took the lives of two former Southeastern Seminary uh, students, mm. uh, Larry wow. and Jean Elliott. And she right. came in, she did open the Bible and read a passage of scripture. And then she shared about how her own life was reflected in that particular passage of scripture, in particular with what she had experienced on the mission field. Uh, do I think that was out of bounds? No. Would I have been happy to have her when my church gathers? Absolutely. Mm. And so I do think, again, there is some room for gracious, loving dialogue, conversation, and even disagreement. Mm. I don't think this is an area where blood needs to be spilled. I think Southern Baptists through the Baptist faith and message are pretty clear on where the boundaries are. Within those boundaries, there is room, I think, for difference uh, and disagreement, but hopefully we can conduct those conversations in a gracious and mm. loving way, uh, not in an ugly and uh, in a way that I think dishonors our Lord. Well, you had a great you had a great interaction with uh, Jen Wilkin in our chapel yes. a few months ago, and the statement was said by her and affirmed by you: women's gifts are essential. Absolutely. God does not give needless gifts, and they are required for the church to fulfill the Great Commission. That seems like a, a good baseline, absolutely, for how we encourage she, women. She to use their stated gifts. it very very well. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Aiken. Absolutely, this has been a real blessing for me. I'm sure it's been a blessing for you at home. We want to thank you for joining us for this Q&A. If you want to learn more about Southeastern Seminary, whether these new women's programs or any of our programs that can equip you for Great Commission ministry, we want to invite you to go to sebts.edu and learn more about all that Southeastern has to offer. Or if you're considering going back to college or going to college for the first time, or if you have children looking to go to college, please check out the College at Southeastern at collegeatsoutheastern.com. We know that it is a great place to be equipped for ministry, but also to be equipped to take the gospel into every arena, whether that's business or teaching or whatever else God has called you to do. Thank you so much for your time today. We'll see you at the next chapel Wednesdays at 1030.